Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In podcast. This is now episode 14 of the podcast in which we'll discuss chapter 12 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe titled Peter's First Battle. And at the end of the last chapter, we saw the winter breaking that this promised to be a real spring and how the White Witch's plans to rule and dominate in Narnia are being frustrated and thwarted by the coming of Aslan, that he is indeed on the move. And he's bringing with him an entire sweep of resurrection, that Aslan's wake is one that gives life and gives purpose and renewal to the world around him. And then in chapter 12, with Peter's first battle, we uh, ended the last chapter with the statement from the White Witch that Aslan's name is not to be uttered. Uh, the dwarf says at the end of the last chapter, this is no thaw, this is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. And she responds cruelly to him that uh, if anyone mentions that name again, they shall be instantly killed. And in chapter 12, we see Lewis's interlacing technique once again, where we move back to Peter and Susan and Lucy and the beavers as they're making their way toward the stone table. And this chapter is a really significant one because there are two visions that Lewis presents in this chapter, both of which come when the figures involved are led up to a height, up a hill or up to a mound, where they are in a position to see further than they might be able to see otherwise. And this is one of those, I believe it's a foreshadowing uh, in many ways of what Lewis ultimately expresses in the last battle, which is in the second to last chapter of that book that is titled Further Up and Further In. You see this uh, invitation that uh, we have to move further up and further in into God's ultimate plan for redemptive history, God's ultimate eternal sovereignty over us and over our stories and over our future and this eschatological uh, reality. The ends of all things will be well. The end of all things will be well. And uh, Lewis is showing that God, through Christ, invites us to see that reality in ways uh, that are uh, helpful, in ways that are um, meaningful to us in this part of our story, that we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. Uh, it says in Hebrews, we, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him, but we see him. We see Christ. And that's part of our limited view now. We don't see all of creation in subjection to and in holy submission to the reign of Christ. But we see Christ, the King. We see him as the risen Savior. And that gives us this invitation, these glimpses of glory, these glimpses of God. And in this chapter, we see that similar uh, further up and further in model in Lewis's technique where uh, about halfway through the chapter, the children are led up a hill and they are able to see in the distance the stone table. They see it itself. And then not long after that, they see Aslan himself, which is a great uh, conjunction of those two realities that they see the stone table uh, on which uh, Aslan will achieve his ultimate victory. We'll see that in coming chapters. And then they see him and they see Aslan himself. So uh, so the first great vision is the vision of the stone table accompanied by the even greater vision of Aslan. And then toward the end of the chapter, Peter is invited by Aslan one-on-one -on -one to rise to a high vantage point in order to see Care Paravel. 
in the distance, the great castle with four thrones that are waiting for the Pevensey children to occupy them as kings and queens of Narnia to fulfill the prophecy and usher in the golden age of Narnia, as it's referred to later. So these visions are quite important to the theological framework that Lewis is bringing in his worldview to the telling of this story, where you see the vision of the stone table and then the later vision of Ker Paravel, both of which united by Aslan. When they see the stone table, they see Aslan right after that. And then when Peter sees Ker Paravel, he's seeing it as guided by Aslan to see it. Aslan leads him to see it. So Aslan is the link between these two visions, but these visions have great symbolic resonance attributed to them. Uh, the stone table will be the the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement, uh, as Aslan and Edmund, uh, as it involves their stories in the chapters to come. That the stone table is this image of law, the deep magic from before the dawn of time that is written on the stone table. Uh, it's described in this chapter as grim slabs of stone, That uh, this slab of stone with four legs. And it's this deep magic, this law, what, uh, that states that traitors are punished punished by death, that they belong to the White Witch, and yet Aslan will intervene and redeem. So you see this vision of redemption in the stone table, and then in Ker Paravel, you see this image of sovereignty and of kingship and of authority and rule, uh, which is a result of the atonement. Because without the atonement of Aslan on the stone table, Edmund could not sit in his rightful throne at Ker Paravel, and the prophecy would never be fulfilled. So the glory of Ker Paravel, the glory of the kingship and the reign and the rule of Aslan and the, the fulfillment of the prophecy and the glorious, uh, the glorious ending to this great story is not possible without the first vision of the stone table the vision of atonement and of forgiveness and of redemption. So these twin visions in this chapter become quite important as symbols of redemption and regality. Redemption and regality. That the redemption of Aslan to purchase Edmund and what Lewis will say in a later book in the last battle that by Aslan's sacrifice, all of Narnia was saved. That yes, it's true that his death on the stone table was a glorious exchange, uh, as one of the reformers puts it. This glorious exchange where he died in the place of one grimy little boy, Edmund. Uh, but yet it becomes the salvation model for all of Narnia. It's the Christ image of Aslan dying for sin, uh, paying the penalty in himself, and then resurrecting, of course. You get this image of, of redemption that... Uh, is the prerequisite for the image of regality, of kingship, of sovereignty, of authority and rule and reign in Ker Paravel. But before we get into that, the beginning of the chapter uh, states that the children have shed their coats behind them as the winter is breaking. It's springtime. Um, they leave the coats behind them, which is funny because toward the end of the book, uh, Devin Brown points this out, at the end of the book, uh, the fact that the coats have been left somewhere in Narnia gives them a reason to admit to the professor all of their adventures in Narnia, uh, that they might he might find coats missing in the wardrobe or whatever. But also, I think it's a good image of what Lewis will explore further in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Eustace 
uh, is transformed into a dragon and Aslan comes and shreds the dragon skin off of him and redeems him back to his human form, the, the great undragoning scene. So this image of Peter and Susan and Lucy shedding these heavy fur coats with the coming of spring, I think is also symbolically significant of the, uh, the passage in Corinthians where Paul says the old man has passed away and all things have been made new. That we are shuffling off this mortal coil, as Hamlet says, that we are, we are dispensing with the old me, um, laying it to rest. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, Paul says in Galatians. And so the leaving of the coats behind is also a great precursor to the redemption to come in later chapters. And so they're moving further into the great spring. Mr. Beaver uh, shows the children this hill that they must climb for the first vision that I introduced. Mr. Beaver says this, Not long now, said Mr. Beaver, and began leading them uphill across some very deep springy moss. It felt nice under their tired feet, in a place where only tall trees grew, very wide apart. The climb, coming at the end of the long day, made them all pant and blow. And just as Lucy was wondering whether she could really get to the top without another long rest, suddenly they were at the top. And this is what they saw. So Lewis is giving this preparatory uh, passage to indicate not only the pleasure and the joy of springtime with all of uh, nature itself uh, reawakening with the move of Aslan, but that statement where they climb and they climb further up and further up. And just when they thought they couldn't climb any further, they were at the top. They found themselves at the top. And this is what they saw. And the whole next paragraph describes the, the grandeur of the scene from that vantage point centered on the vision of the stone table. Lewis says this, In the very middle of this open hilltop was the stone table. It was a great grim slab of gray stone supported on four upright stones. It looked very old and it was cut all over with strange lines and figures that might be the letters of an unknown language. They gave you a curious feeling when you looked at them. The next thing they saw was a pavilion pitched on one side of the open place. A wonderful pavilion it was. And especially now, when the light of the setting sun fell upon it, with sides of what looked like yellow silk and cords of crimson and tent pegs of ivory, and high above it, on a pole, a banner, which bore a red rampant lion fluttering in the breeze, which was blowing in their faces from the far-off sea. While they were looking at this, they heard a sound of music on their right, and turning in that direction, they saw what they had come to see. Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves round him in the shape of a half-moon. It's a beautiful portrait of what I was indicating earlier, the first great vision of this chapter, the, the sight of the stone table and all of the meaning packed in there that the reader doesn't quite yet know what it all means. What are these runes, these, uh, these curious engravings on the stone? Why is it described as grim? Uh, we'll discover that as uh, the chapters move along, what the stone table is as this picture of law, this picture of uh, commandment and holiness, uh, this deep magic from before the dawn of time. But also we get this portrait of Aslan, coupled in this vision where they saw what they had come to see. 
They did not come to see the stone table. They did not come to see the trees and the grass and the streams of water, beautiful though they may be. They have come to see Aslan himself. Uh, as Paul describes Christ in Colossians, he is the arche. He is the center, the, the, the beginning point around which all of the cosmos moves and has its being. And this picture of Aslan, uh, Colin Manlove describes this uh, description from Lewis as the same sort of description you might have uh, for a medieval king. I'm sorry, Donald Glover describes this uh, moment of encountering Aslan as the same as a medieval king. Uh, he says Aslan is, quote, portrayed as a, me- as a medieval king in his cloth of gold pavilion and surrounded by his courtiers. Um, and Colin Manlove describes uh, the way in which Aslan is surrounded by his creatures like this. He says, the book conveys a gradual increase of population. First, one fawn, then two beavers, then a party of Narnians at a table. By the time the children and the beavers reach the hill of the stone table where a pavilion is pitched, the pace of creation seems suddenly to leap as they find Aslan surrounded by a whole group of Narnians, as though they had been begotten by him, which, since he has released them from the Narnian winter, is in part true. And you'll remember what we said about a previous chapter, the way in which Lewis describes the awakening of Narnia with the coming of spring and the dismantling of the witch's curse is this description that has a, a very intentional tempo, that it starts small, one bird warbling on a branch, one flower blossoming out of the snow, one icicle beginning to melt, that sort of thing. And then it crescendos into this entire chorus or congregation of flowers and birds and uh, uh, trees and so on. So the same sort of gradual expanse in nature that Lewis uh, emphasizes is also seen in the entire novel. As Manlove points out, that first you have a single fawn with Tumnus, and then two beavers, and then the the party animals scene with the Narnians celebrating uh, Aslan being on the move. And then now when we see Aslan himself, he is surrounded by an entire crowd of creatures, Lewis says. But also in this vision of the medieval uh, uh, ordered world of Aslan's uh, monarchy, that he is the king. Remember, Mr. Beaver said he is the king and he is not safe, but he is good. With this portrait of uh, gold uh, cloth, yellow silk, cords of crimson, tent pegs of ivory, all of this regal atmosphere that Lewis creates, uh, blowing in the wind is a banner which bears a red lion, which uh, back in an earlier chapter, we saw red as this uh, uh, prelude to the language of redemption and grace, uh, theologically speaking, with, with the Christ image of Aslan as the good king who dies on behalf of another, that the red lion, too, is also a grand statement of what Aslan will offer in contrast to the white paleness and the deathly pallor and the sterility embodied in the white witch, this cold and cruel uh, foe leader, this mockery of a good queen. We see in Aslan the red and the gold images of kingship and of grace. Right after this description, we get another uh, 
revelation from Lewis of this sense of the numinous, this mixture of awe and wonder at the sight of Aslan, which here he is presented for the first time in the book. And Lewis says, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. This is a favorite theme of Lewis's that he revisits office, this ex- often, this experience of the numinous, this experience of joy and delight and gladness of heart mixed with, and in fact, perfectly blended with this experience of awe and fright and respect and seriousness. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven, that there's something about true dignity, true holiness that is beautiful and attractive and warm and and delightful, but also holy and powerful and sturdy and stalwart. And we see that language embodied in Aslan one more time here. We get this interesting uh, statement from Peter as well. Mr. Beaver prods Peter to go on, and Peter says, no, you first, (laughs) which is such a human response. Uh, you go ahead. You talk to Aslan. Um, And Mr. Beaver says, no, sons of Adam before animals. Like in the description of the medieval order that Aslan uh, is uh, portrayed in, and this is something Michael Ward discusses as well in in his book, Planet Narnia. Lewis was a medievalist. He was the foremost authority on medieval and Renaissance literature that he knew what the medieval world ought to uh, feel like and to look like in the sense of order and respect and rule and nobility is all embedded in that. And Mr. Beaver uh, highlights that as well. He says, sons of Adam come before animals, which is back to that dominion mandate, the cultural mandate we received in Genesis, that it is given to mankind to govern the world and cultivate it and rule it well to name the animals and so on. So Peter is trying to shrink from what is his identity to uphold, that he is the high king. He is he will sit on the throne, and he's seeking to offshore that responsibility to someone else. Uh, right after that, he tells Susan that she ought to go because ladies first, <laughs> this um, false sense of chivalry. And she says, no, you're the eldest, which is true. He's the high king. And so you see Peter struggling in a very realistic and human way with the call that has come to him to approach Aslan and accept his responsibility as the high king. And this chapter is titled Peter's First Battle. This is time for him. And remember, Father Christmas had given him the tool he needs with which he will conquer, with Aslan's help, uh, the, the great battle against the White Witch. It's time. It is time for Peter to assume his position, and to meet Aslan. It's Lewis says this after some more awkwardness. Then at last, Peter realized that it was up to him. He steps forward to Aslan. Aslan welcomes them all by name. Welcome, Peter, son of Adam, said Aslan. Welcome, Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. Welcome, he beaver and she beaver. This is, it's important that Aslan welcomes them by name. Uh, unlike the White Witch, who simply exploits Edmund for her own uh, 
agenda. Uh, her dwarves, she just they're just a first dwarf and a second dwarf and so on. Here Aslan knows who they are. And he even asks them, where is the fourth? Where is the fourth? Aslan knows the prophecy. Aslan knows. He's the king. And you get this great recreation of the Eden confrontation between God and Adam, where God asks Adam where he is, knowing full well where he is, that there's a testing in Peter where Aslan asks Peter where the fourth is. And Peter responds, uh, Mr. Beaver says that Edmund had tried to betray them. And Peter says, that was partly my fault, Aslan. I was angry with him. And I think that helped him to go wrong. This is a sense of ownership that Peter takes as high king. He is uh, honest and forthright and willing to claim his own uh, responsibility in the matter, though Edmund made the choice that he did, right? And Peter is not saying that Edmund's choice was his own fault, but Peter is accepting responsibility as a king should. Lucy responds, please, Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund? And Aslan's response here is wonderful. Can anything be done to save Edmund? What a great question. Edmund has sinned. Is there salvation? Is, can anything be done? And Aslan says, all shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. All shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. This brings to mind several points in uh, The Magician's Nephew, which is a later book but serves as a prequel to this story, where uh, Aslan and Diggory, uh, the character in that story, um, are involved in a similar conversation. Diggory awakens the White Witch, awakens Queen Jadis from Charn, and through a series of events involves her in Narnia. And in The Magician's Nephew, Aslan remarks on that reality, and he says something very meaningful along these same lines. All shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. Uh, Aslan says this in The Magician's Nephew. He says, you see, friends, that before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waked and brought hither by this son of Adam. He says, but do not be cast down. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. Notice that statement from Aslan all the way back when Narnia was first created. And evil was brought into that world by Diggory's disobedience and his foolishness. Aslan says, evil will come of that evil, right? Diggory's statement, uh, I'm sorry, Diggory's action, Diggory's sin, bringing Jadis into Narnia will beget further evil. The white witch's curse, right? The destruction of Narnia and so on. But Aslan says, I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. So Aslan knows ahead of time, that the redemption of Narnia, the redemption of Edmund, that the salvation of Narnia itself from the forces of evil will require something of him. And so here he says, all shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. And Lewis says, up to that moment, Lucy had been thinking how royal and strong and peaceful his face looked, Aslan's. Now it suddenly came into her head that he looked sad as well, which this goes back to another moment in 
the magician's nephew, that when Diggory recognizes Aslan gives him this task that he must do in order to cooperate with Aslan, to partner with him in making right what he had done wrong, uh, Diggory has a request that something might be done to save his mother, who is dying back home in England. And Diggory is timid in asking this of Aslan, but he looks up in Aslan's face, and it's and Lewis describes Aslan as having tears in his great eyes. It's a statement worth reading from The Magician's Nephew. Lewis says this, For the tawny face of Aslan was bent down near his own, Diggory's, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And this is the same thing Lucy notices, that however royal and strong and peaceful Aslan's face looks, there suddenly came this look of sadness as well. And this is a great portrait of Aslan as the compassionate, empathizing king. And too, that, that for the, it's like in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before Christ suffered the shame and endured the cross, that Aslan knows that as he goes to the stone table in the next several chapters, that what he must do was something he knew would have to be done all those years ago in The Magician's Nephew, when he said, evil will come of that and I will take it on myself. He knows that he must face the stone table and the grimness of that reality. And there's a sense of sadness there, but it is powered by this joy that is set before. All shall be well. All shall be done, he says. This is confidence in the atonement. And it's at this point that he brings Peter aside and leads him up to the hilltop for the second great vision, where he shows him Ker Paravel on the eastern shore, the great castle of Ker Paravel with the four thrones, where Peter is destined to rule with his siblings as a high king. And this is an interesting note, too, on the on the phrase Ker Paravel. Um, the word care comes from an old British word, care, uh, which means a city. And then um, Martha Sammons has put forward this interpretation of paravel uh, from the word paravel. Uh, and a paravel is one in a position below another, but who holds another beneath them. So functioning as this sort of lord or governor or a vassal on behalf of the king, uh, a person who is in a position of authority, but who is still subject to and submissive to a greater authority. And so that combination of care, uh, meaning this city, this grand city, and then Paravel as a sense of uh, governance or rule on behalf of a greater rule is a really interesting way of, uh, of seeing what care Paravel is. It's the great castle of Narnia where Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy will reign, but they will reign on behalf of the true king. Uh, the the one the good king the one king of Narnia Aslan himself, but right here Aslan shows Peter what his destiny is. He says that O oh man, and notice what he calls him. He calls him a man, not a boy. That O oh man is Care Paravel of the four thrones, in one of which you must sit as king. I show it to you because you are the firstborn, and you will be high king over all the rest. Notice the assertive confidence and authority that Aslan speaks with. This is where you must sit as king. You are the firstborn and you will be high king over all the rest. That the sureness and the certainty of the prophecy is never doubted. That Aslan brings him to the hilltop to show Peter his destiny. 
And just as we saw the stone table before, now we see Caraparavel, that the, the ultimate destination of all things will be one of kingship with Aslan at the top and Peter ruling in this Paravale uh, function as a, as a king or a sub-king on behalf of the great king. And Peter will be high king over Narnia. And it's no accident that right after this scene where he sees Caraparavel is when Peter's first battle takes place. Because that is the condition necessary to make Peter the high king. He must be tested. Remember, the, the Father Christmas gave him a tool, not a toy. He gave him his sword. And it's now that the sword is brandished and used. And this is the first battle in Narnia. This is Peter's great testing point. And that sequence is unmistakable. He sees the kingship that he is called to and then has an immediate test, an immediate challenge to prove himself. And Aslan could have handled this himself. We know that Aslan could, the testing is the coming of a wolf and Aslan could have killed the wolf himself, but he doesn't. He gives it to Peter. This is Peter's first battle that he must take in order to become the person he was made to be. Somebody once said about parenting that you cannot prepare the path for the child. You must prepare the child for the path. And this is exactly what Peter is experiencing. And Lewis says this, Peter did not feel very brave. Indeed, he felt he was going to be sick. But that made no difference to what he had to do. Peter did not feel very brave, but that made no difference to what he had to do. And he slays the wolf. Aslan commands him to clean his sword. And Peter has been prepared for a life of nobility and valor and readiness not feeling brave, but knowing what he must do. So thank you for listening. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.